As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Well, hello. Welcome to Jules Says. I'm Julie Jules. If you have anything you'd like to share, you can DM me or I have a Facebook page called Jules Says. I'm not overly active on Facebook. Sometimes I post pictures associated with some of my podcast episode topics, so you might be interested in checking that out. Last week, I talked a bit about Grandfather Abe the Babe's mom, Sarah. One of the things we touched on was education, and we didn't really get into it. So I want to talk a little bit more about that today, because education is so important for everyone yet it's not available to everyone. I am perfectly happy to pay my taxes to support a high-quality education that's available to all children. I'm not sure they spend the money well. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't. But I certainly think for society to thrive, we absolutely must be well-educated. I know in some countries, education is not widely available to women and girls It's not even available to boys in some countries, but a lot of times there still is that gender disparity. And I know that I took my access to education totally for granted, which I regret now. I didn't go to university. I had a bad attitude in high school. I didn't even try. And my parents wanted me to be an accountant, but that's not what I wanted. And I didn't want to take my father's money. And I didn't believe I could finance going to school myself. Plus, because there was nothing I really had a burning desire to do other than showbiz, which I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it, you know, that's why I encouraged my daughters to pursue creative careers if that's what they wanted. Because I think even if it doesn't work out, I think there's a lot of value in giving it a shot and you don't then have to look back on your life with all kinds of what ifs. It certainly didn't occur to me that I would go to post-secondary for showbiz. And plus, I wouldn't have gotten in anyway. As I've said before, I didn't even have any singing, dancing, or acting training, or music training. Well, I had, I think, two or three years of piano lessons, but that certainly wasn't going to cut it. Anyway, I would love to see young people today to not take access to education for granted. And No matter your relationship with your parents, I know sometimes they'll pay for it if there are strings attached. Hopefully you can work that out if that's the case. But if they're willing to help you with higher education financially, please take it. Even if you're not sure what you want to do, because the reality for me is even if I had pursued some kind of a degree in business or accounting, that really would have 
served me well in my career that I ended up in. And being able to do that and graduate without debt is a gift. And it's never a waste. Never. I've heard people say, oh, well, you don't need university to wash bottles and cook and clean. I'm like, oh, God, like it, it's good for you as a human being. It's always good to learn. I'm still going to school. I still take online courses on a lot of subjects. Right now, I'm in the midst of a six-week program where we have a lecturer from one of the universities talking about iconic performances and how they affected the world through the years. I'm, I'm still getting education all the time, and I'm in my 60s. So if someone will finance that for you, please take it. It's never a waste. And don't dismiss the idea of a trade because there are people who are interested in trades. And I know that recent generations have sadly undervalued trades, but we need them so badly. And uh, from, from what I've read, there's a shortage. People are retiring. We don't have enough young people coming into the trades to replace them. And these jobs require an awful lot of knowledge, and they're always changing. We need electricians, carpenters, plumbers, and the good ones make really good money, and they're worth their weight in gold. In episode Manny of Catherine Ryan's Telling Everybody Everything, Catherine shared an email about a contractor who overbilled the client and was now trying to publicly shame her for the money. This is why Grandfather Abe insists on doing everything himself. Well, almost everything. We don't know who we can trust. Our home was a dump when we bought it in 2007. And when I say we, well, we, mostly Abe, completely renovated it, I'm not talking about flooring and kitchen bathroom, that kind of thing. Joists were replaced. The basement was dug out by Abe with footings and underpinnings put in, new tiling, waterproofing. The entire back end was removed and rebuilt. 100% of the plumbing, heating, electrical was replaced. When we moved into the house in June 2009, we had a toilet in the basement. No running water indoors. Nothing hooked up to it anyway. I mean, the plumbing was there. No flooring, no kitchen cupboards installed, nothing. I had to go to the gym before work to have a shower. When Violet was born, about a week or two after we moved in, I went to England for 10 days. And when I got back, Abe had completed the third floor washroom and most of the flooring in our bedroom. And we went from there. We had to legally hire an electrician, but he sent his apprentice to do the work. And thank goodness Abe had learned electrical code because he had to trail the apprentice and fix mistakes. Oh, we had pot lights, which cost extra. Abe installed them all. He wired for them. We had a bathroom fan light heat lamp combo fixture, and it had a four-wire schematic. And the electrician's apprentice looked at it, tossed it aside, and ran a two-wire connection. So I'm telling you, competent tradespeople are so important. I have one friend who hired a contractor to do his renovation, and the extent of it was not unlike ours. And at the end of it, the contractor claimed that my friend owed money that he definitely didn't owe. Similar type of scam to the woman who wrote to Catherine. But in Ontario, I don't know about the UK or other provinces or countries, but in Ontario, a registered contractor can put a lien on your house, which this guy did. 
And when my friend went to a lawyer about it, the lawyer basically told him that he could pay the 30000 to the contractor or spend 50000 or more to fight it. And even if he won, a lot of these contractors close up shop, open under a new business name, and get away with not paying. The judgment against them isn't even enforceable. And it's such a shame because Abe and I would love to hire good people to do the work we need done. I mean, if Abe's doing it, he's either sacrificing earning money or he's sacrificing enjoying his life after work. So if you know of an ethical, competent tradesperson or contractor who can give you a realistic quote based on actual information, I've seen them just kind of pull a number out of the air, and I have a hard time trusting that, who shows up to do the work and doesn't overcharge you, please, please, please sing that person or company's praises to the high heavens, because that is not the norm. The shortage of tradespeople is not helping the situation either. And the ones who are good very often want to work on the big projects, not the small residential projects. So we need you. It certainly didn't occur to me to go into a trade when I was young. I mean, when I was young, the want ads were female, male, and there's no way anything to do with the trades was even considered for a woman. And I certainly didn't consider it for myself. Plus, there are certain things I would not be able to do because I'm not very strong and I'm small. I can't even lift roofing material. When I had to move roofing material, I had to roll it onto a dolly and move it with a dolly. I mean, I can move things in creative ways, but that's not very efficient. I tried to move some shingles over to the ladder where Abe was working doing roofing. I couldn't even move it. I couldn't even drag it. Meanwhile, Abe just picks it up, hoists it on his shoulder, and marches up the ladder with it. He is a one-man show. But trades are great jobs. They're challenging. They're not boring because there's so much to learn and technologies are always changing. Do you think an electrician's job is anything now like it was 40 years ago? No way. Even plumbing. We used to use lead piping and then copper came into existence. Now we have PEX piping. A plumber might not get to spend the whole day laying pipe, but that's at least part of it at times. My point is, these jobs aren't boring. Some of them are physically more difficult than others. If you're a roofer, you probably can't do that physically for 40 years. So it's good, even if you start out doing one trade, to learn to go into something else that's sustainable. But even HVAC systems, we've gone from wood stoves to coal fireplaces to oil furnaces. That's what they used to have here. You'd have a big tank of oil buried in the ground, high-efficiency natural gas, forced air gas, radiant heat, and in-floor radiant heat, which we have in our house. And now the push to clean energy, such as geothermal and solar, is really ramping up into high gear. These jobs pay well and they're in demand, especially if you're good at doing the work and you're reliable. Yeah, my whole point to that rant was don't dismiss pursuing education in the trades. So when I was young, and I've talked a bit about this before, my father, Ted, graduated at 16, moved up through the bank without a degree, and I thought I would do the same. So that was the other reason that I wasn't going to go to university. I thought, oh, I got this job. I'll just do that. But I started working at the bank as soon as I finished high school. However, at the time, I really just viewed that job as just, I'll do this until I find the courage to do something I want or figure out what I want. And I did genuinely think that I might be able to get promotions, as Ted had. 
I was 18, and you know, at that age, you feel as though you have forever just waiting for you, and you don't fully grasp that the decisions you make every day use up that forever. Doing nothing is a decision. I did take some art courses at the college during that time. One of the courses I took was figure drawing, which I really like drawing and painting people. I rarely paint or draw, so I'm not good at it. But um, when I showed up at my first class, we had the little preamble. We all set up our easels. And I noticed there was a woman kind of hanging around in a bathrobe, which I thought, oh, why is she in a bathrobe? And then she dropped the bathrobe and stepped to the center of the circle. And I was young. We didn't have nude models in high school. So I was kind of shocked. But I proceeded to draw her in all the various positions. One week, I ran in a couple of minutes late The easels were already set up. I noticed the skin out of the corner of my eye. I turned around, dropped my coat, grabbed my easel, and looked up, and I was face-to-face with a naked man. Eye contact, junk, eye contact. He smirked, and I was just really uncomfortable with this. So I took my easel, and I kind of went around to the back. I thought, okay, well, that'll be better. And then when he changed position, he turned around and faced me, and I'm like, ugh. So I took my easel, and I kind of did a three-quarter angle. So I was telling my mom about this later on, and she said, Well, Julie, that's no problem. Just draw a fig leaf there. And I'm like, No, I can't draw a fig leaf. I just felt embarrassed because I felt like to draw the whole human form, you have to look at the whole human form, and I just didn't want to look at that detail. And anyway, I was never going to be an artist. Art courses were something I did along the way periodically just for me. It's very soothing to be in an art studio, drawing, painting, working on a sculpture. For me, it slowed the noise in my head. The time flew, and I emerged just feeling a bit lighter. That's why I think it's so important for all children to have access to the arts and sports. The whole person matters, and art can internally soothe, at least for some of us. I think it's a very good investment. I also did take accounting courses. I mean, after all, I worked for a bank and later in finance departments at the chemical company, so I figured it made sense. Plus, once I got married and started having children, I knew I needed to get serious about earning a living in Sarnia. That just solidified the fact that I really needed to stick with the practical long-term plan. When I got a position in the IT department, I started taking computer-related courses, HTML, Unix at the local community college, plus the company paid for job-related training. I clearly had an aptitude for it, but I kept hitting a wall on opportunities because I didn't have a degree. Back then, a lot of people in IT had math or engineering degrees, If universities offered computer science degrees, it wasn't very common, and we certainly had no computers or computer training in high school. It was very new back then, and I decided this is where I should be because I knew that it was an opportunity to make a pretty good living. So I decided the only way that I could even begin to possibly get a degree was to do correspondence courses. There was a program offered through University of Waterloo, I would be able to get a BA with a math major all through correspondence, and a BA suited me because I really did like a lot of the arts. But remote learning back then was a different beast. The school mailed a package of cassette tapes and materials to the student, 
the tapes were the lectures, and you had deadlines to mail in your assignments. It wasn't learn at your own pace. Exams were held at the local high school with a proctor. I took things like French, history, English, algebra, and a Fortran programming course. We didn't have access to any actual computers, so for the programming course, we had to fill out sheets where we penciled in spots, which were sent to the school, turned into punch cards, and then run through their system to test. Before you sent that away, there was no opportunity to test, no debugging capability, nothing. But I liked it. I got 100% on that course. I mean, it was a very simple course, but still, it was kind of motivating. Unfortunately, I never did finish that degree. I thought I would have loads of time to work on assignments during my 17-week maternity leave for Joanne, but I ended up getting quite ill for almost a whole week after she was born, and by that time, I had no chance of meeting some of my assignment deadlines, and it was an English literature course, so there was quite a bit of effort, essays, reading, so I dropped it and just never went back to it. Anyway, my point to all that is it was a mistake. My parents offered to financially support me to go to university, and I didn't. My grades weren't my best work in high school, but if I had just changed my attitude and put in a little bit of effort, I'm certain I would have had no issues qualifying. So if you have that chance, please do it. Even if you have to finance it yourself, it's still easier to do it before you have children and all the financial responsibilities that go with that. Sure, lots of people do it part-time after, but it is much harder. And every woman I know who was able to complete her degree while working and raising young children had a partner who was willing to take over a huge amount of the cooking, laundry, cleaning, and childcare, or they had help from extended family members with or without a partner. And in some cases, they had enough household income to pay for housekeeping and cooking help, or both. I had none of those things. I did my homework in secret at home or when I had time at work. Before Joanne was born, I worked in a computer room. It was a mainframe environment, and you worked in these temperature, humidity-controlled computer rooms. So much of my time was spent monitoring. It wasn't as though you were constantly actively busy. Some of the women I worked with used to knit while they monitored. Some read magazines. One of my colleagues and I did homework. If you can believe this, the knitters actually complained to the boss that we were doing homework, and the boss told us we couldn't do homework, so that limited me to only when not on shift with the knitters. It's not as though I let anything fall through the cracks. But hey, I had it a lot easier than my mom. She had to quit school at 15 when her father died, so her older brothers could stay in school, and she studied part-time too. She taught bookkeeping at the local college. In those days, it was a system called McBee, all paper journal-based. She got her real estate license, then her broker's license, but not until I was in my late teens and out on my own. And then there's Abe's mom, Sarah. She went to school in her Mexican Mennonite community until age 12. She had always wanted to be a nurse, but the opportunity simply didn't exist. In 1969, when she emigrated to Canada in her 20s, she didn't speak English, she didn't have a driver's license, and she lived in the country, raising six children, so she was a bit stranded, to say the least. I shared some of Sarah's early work life on last week's podcast episode, Fab Women. 
On this podcast, you'll hear her tell me how challenging it was for her in Canada and how she persevered to learn English and advocated for her children to stay in school. Sarah had been married to Abe's father, Pete, for only six months when they immigrated to Canada. And one year after that, Lisa, the first of six children, was born. Did you resent the fact that you couldn't be a nurse? I had to accept that. I, I was disappointed, yes. But um, I had to accept that. I, I, I knew that just my parents couldn't let me do that. They, and they knew that too. That wasn't safe for me. So that was it. When we first got married, it was in the Rangui area. The church was walking distance, so I couldn't walk to church. But six months later, we came to Canada, and I didn't know anybody, well, very few people in that area there that was in the Kitchener area. I didn't speak English, not not one bit, and I didn't have a church to go to. By the time we had to go to the hospital, and so uneducated, as the Mennonites, you're not going much to school and not much education about human life, whatever. I knew it was nine months, it was due. Anytime we could have a baby. I had no idea what to expect. So, yeah, the nurses were good to me, even though I couldn't speak much English. They tried to have me, the Mennonite girl that was a nurse. Yeah, and six days later, I let me go home. And then my husband says he's laid off. Now, and we had moved. We didn't have much of a furniture or whatever. So then we had to move to another big house. It had electricity, but no running water, but there was a pump outside. We had one room that was ours for the whole Kind of like a bachelor apartment, whatever, but no running water in an outhouse. So that that was not very good. That was a not a very good winter. You must have been getting homesick at this. Oh point. yes, a whole lot. Yes, I stayed with the baby. We had very little money, but half of it was spent on booze. The rest of it uh, would you know go for a little bit of food. Very little for the baby. Uh, one little outfit new and a little bit secondhand stuff. Very little stuff for the baby. We survived the winter with that unemployment. And in the springtime, he got a job for a little while. And in the summer, we both worked all summer. As soon as it was possible, springtime, we both worked in a tobacco farm and had to drop the baby off at the babysitters. But there was never a penny left. So I, I only signed a check from the backside. That's the only money I saw. So I had no say. I was just a wife. When you came here, you still thought that you might be able to go back to school? Yes. I stayed, um, I'm still so young, you know, and I could go to school. And uh, he said, well, when are you ever going to get enough first you have to get your English? And I said, well, yes, I know that. And he just didn't want to hear about it, so I didn't even talk about it anymore. And he always said, we're just staying for this our last year, and then we're going back anyways. And we did go back in between, where I was so afraid that this was it. And he didn't let me make my Canadian citizenship, although I was landed immigrant from the, pretty much from the beginning. He had his citizenship because his parents were born Canadian. So he got it quickly, so he was safe, but he didn't let me make mine. I, that was always, oh, we can do that later, we can do that later. But at that point, were you starting to do things like learn to speak English? I did try, yes. I was, the only thing I could do, he wouldn't let me go to school. Anything I could hold hold on to, read, and try, um, practice writing. Because he couldn't stop me from doing that, I could do that when he wasn't there. And I couldn't communicate with the neighbors. He didn't want me to socialize with anybody. But I could read and a little bit of writing. Not very good. Then after all the kids were in school, I said, well, now there's no excuse for me not to go to school. And it was a course offered evenings. I said, now I can go twice a week. 
And he said, yeah, let's go boat. And so I thought, oh, that's great, you know, a boat go, you know. But it was one room class, and I was learning faster than he did. That didn't go well because he was the man and I was only a woman. He told me that many times, you're only a woman. And that hurts, but you kind of get used to it, okay? And um, after a little while, he said, that doesn't work for anybody. Just stop going. And for a while, I kind of just endured. I said, well, no, it does work. I'm learning. And he knew it, too, but he didn't want me to. I, I hung in there for the winter. And then I just knew I couldn't go back. He was giving me such a hard time that it wasn't worth it. So I, I didn't go any further. The children were in school then. I was already learning from the children. And I kept my reading up. And any newspaper or anything, flyers we got, uh, I was reading and practicing the spelling. And finally, we did have an old dictionary, and, and I could actually look up words, you know. That was neat. I didn't know something like existed like that, you know, that actually I could learn that way, you know. If I kind of knew how to spell the word, not sure, I would go and look it up, you know. That was good. So, yeah, I always had a little bit of hope. And then I did one correspondence course in English by mail. And he didn't even like that too much, you know. But I mostly did that when he wasn't home. But he knew I was doing it. And, and then he would just make fun of me and say, well, where's your $100,000 job? I said, this is not about a $100,000 job. This is just kind of like a start of learning to write sentences in a proper way and do a little bit of school. You still know people in your community who only send their children to grade 8. Tell me about how you felt about your children in school, how you tried to motivate them, and then they were expected to work at a very early age, too. Yes. Those were very tough times, but by then, by the, by the time they were all in school, always I kept that in the back of my mind. If things get worse instead of better, I will leave someday. That was that hope that kept me alive, literally, really, and that kept going. And then I thought every year, I don't know how many times a year, was still, by the end of the year, we were going to go to Mexico. And then we are not never coming back. And I thought, well, we may and we may not. Meanwhile, if we are not, I want our kids to have an education. Melissa was the oldest, of course, and sometimes she didn't know what to do with her homework. And I wanted her to do the best she could. I brought the other kids to bed, and we would sit at the kitchen table. It was quiet. And I had already learned to read pretty well in some spelling. So I would help her and sit down with her, and I said, let me read it now over, and then you listen to me. Maybe that will help. So I would slowly read things over and say, like, this is what it asks, and this is what it says. I think this is what it means, or what do you say? And then she said, Mom, now that you're reading it, I think I know what I have to do. So even though I hadn't gone to school, really, I did help her with homework by just being there and reading it over and pointing out what that meant. I didn't know everything, but I helped her move on when it was tough. And so she kept going, and then she was able to help the other siblings with homework. And I was always so supportive. I thought, like, if you don't move this year, maybe not even next year. Maybe not. Hopefully not. They'll get a little bit further. And then once they're older, they can come back. But hopefully, that doesn't have to be that way. But I thought, I'll make the most of it. And that way, at least they get, if they have the English, I thought, that's the big thing. Because that was, for me, the big thing. Like, if I could read and write, that's a big thing. I, I helped them, and I supported them, and asked them what they wanted to do when they grew up. I wanted them to have dreams. And I knew, and Canada was realistic, not like mine. And they told them about me that 
my dreams couldn't have been fulfilled, but theirs could be. They could have jobs. They could have an education. They could have a loan. They could work, make money. They could make it much better than me, and that would fulfill me to a big part if I could see them go to school. He wanted us to work, and we did. And I, I, thought, I agreed. The kids need to learn how to work hard. I took them cucumber picking, tomato picking, and stuff like that. That caught in. Not the cucumber, but the tomatoes that caught into school season. Then I would take them every other day. And I already told the, the farmer, I said, I would take some kids with me every other day. And the others go to school and do homework and brought their homework. That was a big hassle. And the teachers didn't like it. And I didn't like it. Bring homework. And then late at night, we would still work on the homework to bring that in. And then I would still go and pick tomatoes. I wanted, had promised to hang into the fall season. And to get a little bit more money, the kids would get a little bit better clothes and shoes. That was tough, but the kids learned from it hard work that was something they didn't want to do for the rest of their life. Like many of the Mennonite families, they're probably still doing it. Take their kids out of school, and then they lose interest, and then they drop out, and then they repeat the cycle. Then they get married young and have kids, and then they do that same thing that they didn't want to do. I didn't want to do that. I wanted the kids to have a better life. And that this is it. If I don't stick to it, then it's not going to happen. And we are going to do the same thing those families are doing. I didn't want that. We had the biggest fights that the neighbors heard it. I know I yelled, I screamed, and you shouldn't. I know that. That is wrong, and that's very improper, and the kids shouldn't have never heard that. I know that. And I apologize to them. I, all, all of them have forgiven me. But I did it for them. I wanted them to have a better life. They all know that. I fought so hard, I didn't care how angry he was. I, I just didn't care anymore. I thought, like, there's very little hope for you and me anyways. By now, I had pretty much given up hope just hanging in there. And finally, I said, let them at least stay in school there until they're 18. Well, you know what that means. And I knew that too. And he knew, yeah, he said, you know what that means. Then there won't be any good for me and won't give me any money. And I said, so what? If you want something to make you money, buy a bunch of sheep or cows, and they'll make money for you. Children are not to make you money. Even the Bible says so. That was a very ugly, very difficult time. But by then, I had that hope it was going to pull through. Well, actually, when we had, when Peter was a baby, he finally did let me make my Canadian citizenship. I guess he thought, who's going to want her with six kids? Where she's going to go with six kids? She's not going to run away very quickly. This. This is pretty much it, like this is going to be a long time, and it looked like a long time. Shortly after that, I also made my driver's license. Yeah, six kids, you know, it's not very easy trying to learn how to drive. I practiced in the driveway and put logs there to pretend parking. <laughs> but I made it my first test, and then I had my driver's license. So he wouldn't let me drive a lot of times. I had to ask permission if I could go to town to get groceries. And sometimes he said yes, and sometimes he said no, and then I wouldn't. I was... Try to keep peace as much as possible, except for the kids' school. I didn't care. That was the one thing. I didn't care if he was angry or how angry he was. That this is the kids' future, and we'll survive this angry season, and we'll survive. But they will get school. Uh, he, he sometimes said, I didn't know you could be that stubborn. I said, that's the kids' life. Yeah, what about me? And I said, you're making enough money. We're, we're, we're surviving. Yeah, but I have to go to work. Well, he didn't want to go to work. Well, I said, well, so what? I mean, by then I was doing house cleaning. Peter was three years old. I started house cleaning. I could bring him with me. He was 
She said, I'm going to play one dinky car and I'll go upstairs. And I said, now we're going upstairs. He would sit there and play. I could bring him but me. And that was a little bit of money that helped on the groceries. And a way it helped ease the fighting a little bit. So therefore, he was, you know, glad that he had let me make my driver's license because he knew I was only buying food from the money. So then there was a little bit less money out of his pocket. So that did work somewhat, did help. But he didn't want me to try anything else. There was an, an great opportunity, uh, a part-time cook in the hospital. And I wanted to do that. And that was not possible. He didn't want me to do anything else. I was clean. That was pretty much like a did-end job, you know. But working in a hospital, I would get to know more people. And that was uh, soon I could probably be full-time. And even if not, that was more promising. But he did not want me to do anything else. But I wanted so much because now I was seeing uh, like a bigger life. The kids were getting bigger. And even if I only did house cleaning, I could make money. You make that money, Sarah. If you can believe it, Sarah actually was able to eventually buy her own home, which is fully paid for. And even though she didn't talk about it here, she earned her high school equivalency diploma. And all six of her children are college-educated with successful careers, thanks to their extraordinary, ordinary mother. Oh, and the family work ethic most certainly rivals Kim Kardashian's. Thank you for listening. Be well, be happy, and have a wonderful week.